0: Welcome to, wait a second, Calvin, where are we? Well, we're in the recording studio, but this isn't our podcast. I think this is another show on the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Oh man, we gotta get out of here. Wait, maybe we should tell them about our show. Hey, that's a swell idea. Our show, Let's Pharminize, is everything you'd want in a pharmacy podcast. History, pop culture, sex appeal, and humor. We've covered the drug from Limitless, medicine of World War II, the ancient history of birth control, and more. Let's open the vault. Crack that baby open. Does one of the side effects of this medication include a good time? (laughs) Because... (laughs) Yeah, it's E. So there's G-M-A-D, and then there's E. E stands for allergies. <laughs> it's like this spider like drapey thing. We have used wet meatloaf five times in this conversation, and that is five too many times to use the term wet meatloaf. It's like a round lasagna. I mean, you know, it hurts pretty bad, and you're thinking, man, onga Bunga, this is pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> we post new episodes every Monday. Check out Let's Farmanize on your favorite podcast platform and social media. All that and more on Let's Farmanize.
1: You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network.
0: This is the PGX for Pharmacists podcast. We believe pharmacists are the best positioned providers to lead in PGX. Pharmacogenomics is the study of how genes affect a person's response to drugs. This relatively new field combines pharmacology and genomics to develop effective, safe medications and doses that will be tailored to a person's genetic makeup. This podcast is dedicated to pharmacists with an interest in learning more about the data analytics, industry trends, and evidence-based usage of pharmacogenomics. Welcome to PGX for Pharmacists, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network.
2: You're listening to the PGX for Pharmacists podcast, whose parent network, the Pharmacy Podcast Network, is dedicated to exploring the pharmacy profession and the pharmacy industry. On the PGX for Pharmacists podcast, we discuss all things pharmacogenomics, and our mission is to educate and advocate for pharmacogenomics. For those listeners who do not know my qualifications to speak on pharmacogenomics, I have been a PharmD for 23 years this past May and I have 22 years of experience in the pharmacy industry directing pharmacy operations and clinical pharmacy programs whose missions were to improve medication safety and efficacy. For the last eight years, I have worked in the pharmacogenomics industry as a PGX clinical science and clinical implementation liaison and as well a certified pharmacogenomics educator. I have provided pharmacogenomics consulting to pharmacogenomics laboratories, pharmacogenomics prescribers, patients, software companies, insurers, and employers, and I'm also the host of the PGX for Pharmacists podcast. So today's podcast episode is the first in a series of podcast episodes titled Pharmacogenomics, the State of the Industry, Market Access, and Reimbursement. I'm very excited about this podcast series as pharmacogenomics testing market access and reimbursement has been a major barrier to pharmacogenomics democratization. And as a pharmacogenomics advocate, one of my goals has been to help improve pharmacogenomics market access and reimbursement. In my quest to improve market access and reimbursement, I have met several colleagues with very impressive biographies who are actively creating and providing solutions to this dilemma. I will be introducing my market access and reimbursement colleagues to you through this series of podcasts in the hopes that you will not only learn how to advocate for improved market access and reimbursement, but that you might seek assistance from me and my colleagues in your pursuits. Before I introduce you to my esteemed guests, who are absolute rock stars in the precision medicine industry and well-recognized experts in market access and reimbursement for diagnostic testing, I want to ask you to consider the following questions that I have pondered since transitioning from a career in non-precision medicine to precision medicine. So number one, Why do payers pay per medication for a patient and the costs that arise from poor medication outcomes, such as hospitalizations, urgent care visits, repeat physician visits, and et cetera, but the same payer does not pay for the diagnostic test to help the prescriber determine if the medication will be efficacious and or non-toxic for the patient. In other words, why do mismatches exist between payers' medical coverage policies and payers' pharmacy benefit policies? The second question is, why isn't diagnostic testing prior to prescribing medications mandated by the FDA for medications for which diagnostic testing is available And the FDA recognizes its value in mitigating efficacious and non-toxic medication outcomes. And why isn't payer reimbursement for diagnostic testing mandated when the FDA recognizes the test value in mitigating efficacious and non-toxic medication outcomes? And last, question number three. Upon what framework Do payers currently base their decisions to reimburse diagnostic and pharmacogenomic testing? And how might a pharmacist influence payers to change their perspective about diagnostic and pharmacogenomic testing to a perspective that recognizes both the value in precisely diagnosing a condition and precisely prescribing medications to treat the condition based on the patient's individual needs. So now to introduce my special guests today who have helped me to better understand the market access and payer reimbursement landscape. I introduce to you, Hannah Mamuska and Lena Chahorsky of Alva10. Hannah and Lena, thank you so much for joining me today to discuss this very important topic in precision medicine. I want you both to tell the audience how you're qualified to discuss this topic. Hannah, could you please start us off with your biography and Lena, please follow Hannah with your biography and also tell us about Alba 10 for the listeners who are not familiar with Alba 10.
3: Sure. Becky, thank you so much. Uh, Although, to be honest, if you had told me 20 years ago in my career that I'd be on a podcast talking about reimbursement and market access, I don't think I would have believed you. My background is I'm a molecular biologist by training. I started my career doing target discovery at the National Cancer Institute. I worked in pharma for several years, working on some early generation targeted therapies in multiple myeloma and and solid tumors before moving into the diagnostics industry where I've worked for the past 20 years. You know, and over the course of my career in diagnostics, I've worked for small startup companies, large global IVD companies, and I've seen really an incredible evolution of diagnostic technology. And we're at the point where I don't think that we have technical limitations anymore to impact patients. The limitations are all in the market. We have ways of identifying genetic, genomic, proteomic factors to determine risk of disease, presence of disease, to accurately diagnose patients, to stage patients, to grade them, to determine likelihood of response to drugs, to determine likelihood of adverse events, hospitalizations, even whether or not... Uh, implantable devices are likely to be successful. But our healthcare system is really built to pay for drugs and procedures and hospitalizations and not for the diagnostic tools to tell us what is gonna be most effective and impactful in patient care. And about five years ago, I got really frustrated with this, trying to get diagnostics that my team and I had worked to build, commercialized and paid for in our healthcare system. Diagnostics historically are really paid on a a low cost plus measure where diagnostics are expected to survive on cost plus about 2%. So effectively how much it costs you to run the test plus a very small margin. And that really keeps diagnostics from impacting patient care because the laboratories just can't make them commercially successful. And so we started Alva10 to really change the relationship between how payers view diagnostics and how payers view the value that they bring to our healthcare system. So we work with payers to use economic models to help them identify areas of inefficiency within their populations, areas where they're spending too much on care, uh, too much on drugs, too many hospitalizations, too many on adverse events. And then we either point out where they have non-coverage policies or aren't appropriately using diagnostic tools that could improve those outcomes in economics, or identify new blue ocean areas where diagnostic tools can be built to the needs of the market. Um, And that has allowed new diagnostic companies and new diagnostic tests to find a place in the market where they can change both how the patients are being managed and change the economics uh, to align together so that patient outcomes and payer economics uh, can be successful in the market.
2: Thanks so much for providing us uh, information on your background and Alva10. Lena, can you please share with the audience um, your biography? Sure,
1: Becky, and great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so my name is Lena Chaihorsky. I'm the vice president of Pair Innovation and the co-founder here at Alva10. Um, my background academically is actually in mathematics and biology. I got started in reimbursement and diagnostics because I saw it fundamentally as a math problem. I was really interested in solving, frankly. Um, we have an enormous problem in this country when it comes to healthcare in terms of how misaligned our financial incentives are. Um, And diagnostics really sit at the heart of that problem. And so what I've been working on in my career, I've worked in small companies, I've worked in large companies prior to co-founding Alba 10. What I've really been working on is obtaining value-based reimbursement for diagnostics and really trying to answer the question, how do we realign our financial incentives in favor of diagnostics and in favor of precision medicine? And how do we show payers and employers and everybody else out there that pays for healthcare that that's the way that things should be moving and that that is actually a far more cost-effective way of performing healthcare um, than how how it's currently done. And I think the reason that Alva10 has been seeing sort of the success and traction that we've been seeing is that we were really at the forefront of changing this conversation for payers. We were really the company that started talking to payers about diagnostics as a solution to their drug problem And to kind of just answer, I guess, a little bit, one of the questions that you posed, the reason that that was sort of so new and innovative at the time is because payers aren't really set up to think about diagnostics. They're not set up to evaluate them. They're set up as actuaries to think about and evaluate drugs. And so when we came through the door and started talking about diagnostics as a solution to the drug problem, we also came through with a whole set of solutions around how insurance companies can start to engage with the diagnostics industry. That has really been changing the conversation because now payers are starting to think about diagnostics more and starting to think, well, maybe this is the solution to my drug problem in a way I never before imagined.
2: I love that. I absolutely love that phrase, that diagnostics could be a solution to their medication problems. That is a perfect, that is just a great um, phrase uh, to represent what we're trying to do, especially with pharmacogenomics. Um, so, you know, precision medicine is a buzzword in healthcare, and pharmacogenomics is the main focus of the PGX for Pharmacists podcast. So, um, based on your education and experience, how do you, as non pharmacists, I love your perspectives, having different perspectives than the pharmacist. How do you perceive pharmacogenomics to fit into that broad term of precision medicine?
3: So, I remember learning about pharmacogenomics as an undergraduate in college more years ago than I want to describe. And, you know, when I came out into the laboratory world, I was under the misunderstanding that pharmacogenomic use was commonplace and that we were obviously testing for. Uh, pharmacogenomic differences in patients before we were prescribing the medication. And I was shocked that this wasn't commonplace. You know, if you think about the fact, people talk about precision medicine a lot in oncology um, because there's this concept that I think started with Gleevec and Herceptin of building drugs around the drivers of oncologic diseases and targeting those diseases and identifying the targets in those patients, and then making sure that we give the drugs to the patients based on the presence of the target. But you can also think of precision medicine as being two-sided, where we need to confirm the presence of the target, not just in oncology, but with every targeted therapy. And really every drug that's been developed in the past 30 years is a rationally designed targeted therapy where we could find those targets in patients um, before we prescribe the medication. But on the other side, we also need to make sure that the patient can Effectively use the medication, and that's really where pharmacogenomics comes in, because having knowledge about the metabolism and how a drug is used, broken down, how it is able to be, uh, how it is able to be consumed effectively by a patient, is really critical into making sure that it is the right drug, that it is the right dose, that you're that you're not over-medicating a patient that may be a slow metabolizer, that you're not under medication, medicating a patient that may be a rapid metabolizer. And to me, that is a fundamental fact of precision medicine. We have to have both sides of it. If even if we know the target on one side, but we don't know if a patient is actually able to metabolize and use that drug, we're certainly not following the concept of precision medicine. And if we were to actually apply precision medicine across every disease and really focus on answering those two questions, is this the right drug for the patient? Are they able to use the drug? And is this the right drug for the patient? Do they have the presence of the target? Is their disease exacerbated through a pathway that this drug inhibits? Knowing those two would would change massive inefficiencies in our healthcare system. Because right now, for the most part, we treat patients in a trial and error way. You know, we prescribe medications to patients and hope that it works for them. Um, Even though we know that the average response rate for drugs approved by the FDA is 35%. And we know that more than 80% of patients have some uh, genetic difference from the average in terms of having a different way of metabolizing some class of drugs on the pharmacogenomic level. But most patients get prescribed drugs without having that information. And that leads to more hospitalizations, more adverse events, more drug switching off of ineffective therapies where patients are are not responding or having a severe adverse event that that doesn't allow them to stay on that drug. And if we were using diagnostic tools, optimized diagnostic tools up front, we would completely change how patients are managed. I agree. I agree.
2: Um, So, which one of you ladies wants to answer the big question? Um, How do pharmacogenomics tests get reimbursed in our current healthcare system? What are we looking at? Um, I have a lot of experience in non-reimbursement and trying to, um, you know, reach the payer and show the reasons why reimbursement should occur. Please comment for us on how you've seen pharmacogenomics uh, reimbursed within our current healthcare system. Sure.
1: So to one of the points that Hannah made earlier, pharmacogenomics as diagnostic tests are really reimbursed on a fee-for-service system, right? That essentially means that when a test gets run, um, the laboratory will submit a claim to the insurance company and that insurance company pays that claim. And the average reimbursement for a pharmacogenomic test today Hovers at about $250 to $300, which really isn't very much at all. If you think about the massive economic impact and value that a pharmacogenomic test has when it is able to prevent an adverse event, a hospitalization, et cetera. So that's kind of one of the first problems, right? Is that the reimbursement of these tests is dramatically lower um, than the value that they're providing. And that's unfortunately not just a problem with pharmacogenomics, it's a problem with diagnostics at large. Um, but it's essentially a CPT code that, uh, that a laboratory would submit to an insurance company. And that's, that's how it would get paid just to show you. It's very different. That's a very different value proposition than the way that drugs get paid. You know, obviously drugs also get paid on codes, right? But when pharmaceutical companies set the prices of drugs, they're setting the price of the drug based on the value, right? The value of health and wellness. How, how wonderful and valuable would it be if we were able to take away pain, right? Um, that's very different than the diagnostic industry, which originally was set up to answer the question, well, how much is this, gonna, t- is this test going to cost me to run, right? When the laboratory answered that question, and then to Hannah's point, a couple more percentages of profit were sort of tacked on top of that. And you have our current reimbursement system. That is the fundamental problem also, because I think it keeps a lot of physicians potentially from ordering, ordering more of these tests. You can think about it a little bit as paying your soldier $5 to guard the castle, Right. You're not paying the diagnostic test a lot to perform a really valuable function. And that's a fundamental flaw in the design of our healthcare system. And of course, it all goes back to really low cost plus reimbursement for Mm -hmm. diagnostics.
2: That, that is a great example. Um, we often ask in our society, why aren't teachers reimbursed like star athletes? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, teachers are, are the future of our children, um, and athletes are entertainment for the most part. So you know, relating that to diagnostic testing, uh, pharmacogenetic testing's value, That's a great way to look at it is um, without knowing the the precise diagnosis or how medications will work for that patient. um, You know, there's value that is highly valuable to positive medication outcomes um, and positive outcomes from the patient's condition. So, you know, you guys work in this um, in the payer relationships what trends are you seeing um, in insurance coverage of pharmacogenomics tests I have you know my experience from having worked um with payers with the laboratories I've worked with what are you guys seeing you probably have broader exposure than I do
1: well we've read a lot of coverage policies on pharmacogenomics that's for sure I think it all comes down to maybe a couple key trends. Um, the first thing that I'll say, sort of as a global statement, is that insurance companies do not cover pharmacogenomics as an upfront or proactive way of getting information, right? If they're covering pharmacogenomics at all, they're covering it um, in reaction to the fact that a particular drug usually with an FDA warning label, is about to be prescribed. And that's sort of the first fundamental difference, right, between how we as a diagnostic industry see the value of pharmacogenomics, which is, hey, everybody should have access to this information, and how the insurance industry sees pharmacogenomics, which is really, well, only if you really need it in these very specific indications, right? So that's kind of the first major difference. Um, We've seen a lot of coverage policies changing for the better over the past couple of years, but there's still a lot of room for improvement. A lot of the major insurance companies, and Medicare included, do cover pharmacogenomic tests, particularly antipsychotics, antidepressants, um, when there is an FDA label um, that shows that there's a drug gene interaction. There are some insurance companies that also cover pharmacogenomic tests when CPIC has a category A or category B indication for that drug gene interaction. The vast majority of of insurance companies will cover um, what I like to call a point indication, right? They'll cover, for example, um, CYP2C19 for Plavix, but not for beta blockers. And that's really a function of where those insurance companies see that there has been sufficient clinical evidence to prove um, that having that pharmacogenomic diagnostic test dramatically changes the assignment of drugs in the patient and that that assignment change will lead to an overall better uh, clinical outcome for the patient. So it's where they see that there's enough clinical literature, that's where they're then willing to cover the test. So it's a little bit all over the board. Um, we are, But again, we are seeing some, some positive trends, which is great but it's again, it's this very sort of bullet pointed
2: list, right? We
1: cover for this, but not for this.
2: Yes, I agree with you. Um, And I guess one of the biggest conundrums that I question is the location of your laboratory in the United States can determine whether a patient's test is reimbursed or not um, with Medicare. Um, You know, we want pharmacogenomics to be democratized we want it to be equal we want everyone to have the opportunity um so you're you're absolutely right um it's kind of hit and miss all over the board it is improving which is awesome um because you know our ultimate goal is democratization of um, pharmacogenomics and precision medicine so let me ask uh, you ladies this question. Do you, do you think that the lack of transparency and the lack of broad coverage policies affects the use of PGX? Um, what impacts have you seen on patient care as a result of these low coverage policies?
3: Yeah, I think without question, it impacts Patient care um, because the lack of transparency and the lack of knowledge as to whether a test is going to get paid for means that a doctor has to uh, wait to order the test until they're ready to prescribe the medication. And because the rates are so low for laboratories who are running these tests, they tend to batch them, which is completely understandable because they need to be able to make a margin. Often, though, that means that they're not getting the results for four to six weeks after they get the after the test is ordered. Now, if you are a physician who's looking to prescribe a medication, you're probably looking to prescribe it for a reason that's maybe more urgent than waiting four to six weeks. And so that really factors into the clinical utility of the test. And the way payers think about clinical utility is how is the use of this test, how is the money that I'm paying for this test going to change how this patient is managed? And one of the things that payers notice, uh, sometimes I don't think they realize they're part of the root of this problem, is if a physician orders the test, orders the drug. It takes four weeks to get the results of the test back. The patient starts on the drug anyways because they need to be medicated for something, and then they either have or do not have an adverse event, uh, and then the results of the test come back. Well, that's not particularly helpful, but it's the system that makes it not helpful. And so the next time that physician may say, well, uh, it worked out okay last time, so I'm just going to order the drug and, and hope that it goes okay for the patient. And that's, that's a problem because if we had a system where the tests were reimbursed at the same level um, that the drugs are paid for, that would enable the lab to run a test when a test is ordered and not have to wait in batch and the results were able to come back within you know, a week or 10 days, the physician can make the decision to say, okay, I know you need to go on an antidepressive medication, let's make sure we get it right and we'll put you on it next week when we get these results back. And that difference is really substantial, and you know we see that you see that difference not just in mental health, you see it across in cardiovascular disease, in in a whole variety of diseases, and that gap really impacts patient care. No, I think that's exactly right. <laughs> I think the only thing I would
1: add is. Almost a hope and a prayer um, to insurance companies that they and 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 we we do a lot of this education with insurance companies, but frankly, I think the diagnostic industry as a whole needs to push on this so much more. Um, turnaround time is a huge, huge factor of clinical utility. It is not just a question of what information you're providing; it's a question of how quickly are you providing it. Are you providing it in a time um, in a t- in a time frame that enables the physician? to make that decision and get the patient on the medication that's going to be right for them. Um, that, that is huge. And I don't think we spent enough time talking about it. I I think we need to push on it more. We push on it all the time, but a call if you will, to the diagnostic industry to, uh, to, to be more assertive there, I think.
2: I agree. Um, and you know, I think that's part of, um, kind of what I've been able to help, uh, pharmacogenomics vendors with is expressing in costs, medication cost terms or medication related cost terms, helping payers to see that that it's not just the upfront cost of a medication that's costing them or the upfront cost of a diagnostic test or pharmacogenomics test that is costing them. It's all the costs that are related to not uh, paying for that diagnostic test, Um, the hospitalizations, urgent care visits. You know, when patient has a non-therapeutic medication outcome, um, just think about antidepressants, for example. They already, you know, they, for the most part, uh, need four to six weeks to reach um, a therapeutic um, level. And that's delaying the patient already by four to six weeks. And then, you know, two weeks when we find out that that's not even the correct antidepressant for that patient, that's another two weeks, and you know what kind of healthcare services is that patient seeking in the meantime? Um, you know, they may be back in the emergency room. Um, you know, they may need to be admitted to an inpatient facility. So, I absolutely agree with with uh, you, ladies, that it's not just the medication cost and the test cost; it's the costs that are related to not. <laughs> to not uh, recognizing the value of this test. So, um, you know, my goal for this podcast is to help pharmacists realize that um, there are endless ways that they can help advocate for pharmacogenomics, um, increase the adoption of pharmacogenomics, not to just help physicians with integrating pharmacogenomics into medication therapy management, but how they can become a force for change for pharmacogenomics. Um, Would you all like to elaborate on how you see that pharmacists might be able to be this force of change?
3: I think pharmacists are in a unique position to talk to patients. You know, pharmacists have a role where they explain medication use, where they explain prescription, the importance of medication adherence to patients. And I think they also have the opportunity to ask the question about pharmacogenomics. You know, before you were prescribed this medication, did your physician run a a pharmacogenomic test to make sure that this is safe for you, to make sure that this is the right medication for you? These are conversations that that every provider who interacts with patients, I think, really needs to start having with patients across the board, across disease areas, because I think as we educate more patients to just be able to ask the question, we will Mm -hmm. push the industry forward as opposed to uh, hoping that the physician had the time and knowledge to run the test and hoping that they were, you know, properly incentivized and able to do so.
2: That's a great perspective. Um, I'll just add to that just some ways that, uh, for example, I've been able to help um, in my roles with pharmacogenomics vendors. For example, you know, being that clinician that talks to the payer and says, this is the patient's medication list. This is the patient's, you know, the problems they're experiencing. And this is why this test is medically necessary. Um, you know that can make a difference with payers. Is that clinician speaking to the payer and, and helping advocate? I guess maybe a patient advocate um, to help them to, to seek reimbursement um, for their PGX test. Lena, anything to add?
1: <laughs> That's so true. I was just thinking about what you both said. I I would go one step further too, and say that for the pharmacists in states that can practice at the top of their license and and for states that have not yet allowed pharmacists to practice at the top of their license, the ability for the pharmacist to actually order the diagnostic test, I think, is a huge opportunity for our healthcare industry. Um, You know, just like Hannah said, pharmacists are a trusted source, and particularly in community medicine, pharmacists are such a trusted source of information for patients. And I think today we put a lot of the pressure and obligation on the physician, unfortunately, because we have to, because we don't have enough pharmacists that are able to order diagnostic tests. And I think we need to get there as a healthcare system. There are a lot of states already in which pharmacists can practice at the top of their license, but empowering pharmacists more um, and having uh, pharmacy, pharmacy advocacy organizations continue to push for other states to practice at the top of their licensure will open up this space, I think, because it will enable the pharmacists not just to ask the question, has a pharmacogenomic test been run, but to resolve that, right? And to
2: provide the solution in case it has not been run. An excellent point, Lena. And, you know, of course, I'm a full supporter of that because like you said, you know, this is one thing that pharmacists can take off the plate of the provider, the doctor, the nurse practitioner, the PA, who is already um, overtaxed. And, you know, this is something that we can take off their plate, and we can benefit the patient. You know, we're all working towards the patients having better outcomes. So absolutely, if, you know, pharmacists were enabled to prescribe pharmacogenomics tests, and, you know, not even the boards of pharmacy and such saying it's acceptable for them to order, but payers recognizing pharmacists as providers for ordering the test and uh, reimbursing the test when uh, pharmacists order the test. That's a very critical piece to that puzzle. Absolutely. All right. So, You know, we've got to wrap this up and we could talk, you guys, we talk all the time. We could talk till we're blue in the face about this topic because we're so passionate about it. We're gonna wrap it up for today. Maybe you guys can come back and join us. Maybe we can drill down into some of the individual, um, you know, ideas that we covered. Maybe drill down a little bit deeper. I'd love to have you back. Um, For our listeners, Hannah and Lena, Can you let them know how to contact you for more information? Sure.
3: Absolutely. You can find us on our website, which is alva10dx.com. And Lena and I are both fairly active on both LinkedIn and Twitter. Awesome.
2: I really appreciate you guys joining us today. It's been an excellent conversation. I look forward to continuing our conversation in the future.
3: Thank you so much, Becky. We really enjoyed this. Thank you,
0: Becky. Thanks for your interest in PGX and for spending some time with us. Please share this podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. For all of our episodes, please visit PGX4RX.com.
2: That's PGX4RX.com.